happy Saturday, everybody. I hope you're having a great weekend if these are, in fact, your days off. Today is the 183rd anniversary of the beginning of one of my favorite topics from the show, The Great Moon Hoax, which is also a favorite episode from the past archive. Other people like it because it's hilarious. This is a two-part episode, which originally came out in 2015. We're going to be sharing this one, part one, today, this week, and next week you will get part two. If you're extra eager for part two, though, you can find it on our website at missinghistory.com. And if you're subscribed to our show, you'll probably be able to find it by searching your library on most podcast apps, although all the various apps handle archival material a little differently from one another. Regardless, though, enjoy. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry and I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And uh, who doesn't love a good hoax story? So there's actually a news series that we're going to talk about today and we have to kind of air quote the word news. Uh, But it's an important landmark in journalism history as well as cultural history. It also involves the history of mass media and even sort of a lesson in in gullibility and kind of crowd mentality. Uh, This is a topic that the Memory Palace actually did a short episode on uh, back in 2010. And that episode is called The Moon in the Sun, and it's worth a listen. Uh, It is brief but very enjoyable. So conspiracy theories and cartoons like Tex Avery's The Cat That Hated People aside... Do you remember that cartoon, Tracy? I do not. It was about a cat who um, hated people. He lived in New York City, and so he uh, got himself on a rocket to the moon so he could be alone and enjoy it. But, of course, the moon was full of crazy things that made him just as annoyed as Earth and even more so. So much so that he figured out a way to get back to Earth, and even though New York did not treat him well, he was very happy. But uh, we know that, in fact, (laughs) that is uh, fallacious information and that the moon is basically pretty empty. There are some things there, but... Not crazy horn people, as shown in that cartoon walking around. Uh, But in 1835, a New York newspaper printed a series of stories about amazing discoveries on the lunar landscape. And we are first going to talk at length uh, about the incredible descriptions of the amazing things that were uh, allegedly seen on the lunar surface through a telescope. One thing I noticed during my research about this news series is that the articles, and again, there are six of them and they're very lengthy, kind of get summarized to this point where it's like two to five sentences about each one, maybe, and some don't even cover that. Uh, And you lose a lot of the amazing and sometimes crazy descriptions of these discoveries. So uh, Tracy and I are actually going to walk through the text with a lot more description. We're going to break down a lot more of it. Uh, And that makes this a two-parter because there is a lot to talk about. Uh, Even though we're not covering everything in that, quote, historical account, uh, because that would take hours, it's still going to take quite a bit of time. And so uh, this first part, we're going to talk a lot about those those entries in the New York Sun. The second part of this two-parter will wrap up the account as it was published in serial form. And then we'll talk about kind of the reception these claims got and sort of the atmosphere of the culture at the time and how that sort of enabled and provided a fertile ground for this hoax to happen. So before the series began, the small teaser appeared in the New York Sun, and that was on Friday, August 21st, 1835. And this little teaser read, Quote, we have just learnt from an eminent publisher in this city that Sir John Herschel, 
at the Cape of Good Hope has made some astronomical discoveries of the most wonderful description by means of an immense telescope of an entirely new principle. And the city that was being referenced in that sentence was Edinburgh. Yeah, that was, uh, it was placed, again, it was a tiny little teaser and it was placed as though it was put there by the Edinburgh Current. Now, the first entry in this series appeared in the paper on Tuesday, August 25th, uh, still 1835, so a few days later, so that, that little teaser had been allowed to sit for a bit, and it was titled, quote, Great Astronomical Discoveries Lately Made by Sir John Herschel, LLD, FRS, at the Cape of Good Hope, from the supplement to the Edinburgh Journal of Science. Sir John Herschel is not an entirely new name on the podcast. We mentioned him as the nephew of Caroline Herschel in our episode on astronomy's Cinderella. Yeah, we'll reference Caroline very briefly towards the end of the second episode, but this article, uh, this first entry, ran on the front page of the New York Sun, and it took up about 75% of the, the front page, and it opened with this. In this unusual addition to our journal, we have the happiness of making known to the British public and thence to the whole civilized world recent discoveries in astronomy which will build an imperishable monument to the age in which we live and confer upon the present generation of the human race a proud distinction through all future time. And again, they're placing this as though it had been, these were notes to the Edinburgh Journal of Science that were then being reprinted in New York. It goes on to build up the announcement before making it. It describes the awe of such a discovery and how it makes us earthbound creatures feel almost like we suddenly have supernatural powers. Herschel is described as setting up his stupendous apparatus, which was his new telescope, which was, quote, of vast dimensions and entirely new principle. And then he is described as pausing for several hours before looking through it so that he could collect himself and prepare for the discoveries that he was about to make. Yeah, uh, the article assured the reader at this point that Herschel was right to do so, because the things that he saw in his first hour of observation are incomparable in the way in which they're, they're going to advance human knowledge. His telescope, the article said, rendered his view of objects on the lunar surface, quote, fully equal to that which the naked eye commands of terrestrial objects at the distance of 100 yards. An important thing to note at this point is that the article title makes it sort of sound like it was written by Sir John Herschel, but the actual entry is written as introduced from the point of view of the newspaper, reported to them uh, through Dr. Andrew Grant, and that's who the New York Sun described as an assistant to the astronomer. The Sun assured readers that the notes that Grant had shared with the publication were almost as thorough as thorough as those of Herschel himself. After the intro, the articles then are framed as being written by Andrew Grant himself. Uh, so the rest of the August 25th entry went on to describe in great detail Herschel's telescope. And the reason for this lengthy description, and I mean it is in great detail, uh, according to this article, is that, quote, a knowledge of the one is essential to the credibility of the other. So they, they're they kind of setting it up that once readers understand how amazing this telescope is, then they won't for a second doubt its ability to see these things that no one else had previously seen. It claimed that this apparatus was 24 feet in diameter, or 7.3 meters, and this would have made it six times the size of the, the telescope 
that his father William Herschel had built. To make some modern comparisons, the Hubble telescope is 14 feet or 4.3 meters in diameter. The Gran Telescopio Canarius in the Canary Islands, which is currently the biggest optic telescope on Earth, is 34 feet or 10.4 meters in diameter. So, so it was basically claiming that this telescope was, was huge. Huge even yeah. comparison to other telescopes of today. Oh, yeah. And at this point, remember, uh, they're sort of building on this idea. You know, they're they're referencing William Herschel, who at that point was a very well-known astronomer. Uh, the discovery of Uranus had happened in the recent past. And so it, they're kind of building uh, scientific credibility by referencing him and talking about how his son is advancing telescopic technology so much more. Uh, and apparently this new telescope that they're, they were describing which was reported as weighing nearly seven tons, also possessed a hydro-oxygen microscope. So it combined telescopic technology with microscopic technology. And this projected the telescopic image onto a screen of canvas and allowed for clear magnification of far-distant objects. How big and clear did this article claim it made things? Uh, It was reported that this telescope they're describing would have a magnification of 42,000 times. So this was the first of the six entries in the series, and you will notice it has said almost nothing about the moon yet. Yeah, this is all set up at this point. Uh, And before we get to the juicy stuff, do you want to pause for a word from a sponsor? Let's do, because then we can have lots of juicy stuff close together. So, uh, back to the New York Sun's account as relayed to them by Dr. Andrew Grant of the work of Sir John Herschel. Uh, The second entry that the newspaper published just the next day is where things really get cooking. So in terms of uh, descriptions, it really sort of blew things wide open. It first established the timeline of Herschel having left London on September 4th of 1834, transporting, when he did this, his assistants and his new lenses by ship to the Cape of Good Hope. And it also described the installation of the telescope in great detail, talking about like how it was laid out, how they built a foundation for it, etc., further establishing the credibility of the discoveries they were about to share. The New York Sun reported that the fateful day on which Herschel turned his telescope to the moon was January 10th, 1835, at about 9.30 in the evening. The lunar landscape, as seen through this telescope, uh, was apparently, uh, to Herschel, a greenish-brown basaltic rock. And he also saw that it was covered with dark red flowers, very similar to poppies. This, the article claimed, was, quote, the first organic production of nature in a foreign world ever revealed to the eyes of men. He also recorded a lunar forest, which was said to resemble really large yew trees. And the astronomer observed that as the moon shifted positions, uh, this was followed by a green plain and then a forest of fir trees. And after adjusting the telescope's magnification, Herschel and his assistant realized that they had also found a body of water with beautiful beaches that were full of white sand bordered by these green marble rocks. The water appeared to be blue, just like it does on Earth, and also seemed to experience tides. Yeah, it talks at length about where they could see that the tides had hit the the rocks on the edge of one side of this body of water. 
So according to the information that Dr. Grant shared with uh, the New York Sun, the landscape observations that Dr. Herschel and his team were doing went on for almost two hours. And then uh, after adjusting the lenses of the telescope once more, there are often references throughout all of these these, uh, articles of how they adjusted lenses and switched things out. Then they observed various crystalline structures in the landscape, and then a herd of quadrupeds was spotted. So this herd of creatures was reported to be in the shade of the forest, and the animals appeared to be a lot like small bison, although very much smaller than any bison on Earth. These creatures had uh, a lot of characteristics that were similar to uh, terrestrial bison. There were, quote, semicircular horns, the hump on its shoulders, and the depth of its dewlap, and the length of its shaggy hair. He also described this species as having, quote, a remarkable fleshy appendage over the eyes, which spanned across the head from ear to ear. So according to this account, Herschel is said to have guessed that this flap covering the eyes would shield the animal from the extreme variations in light and darkness that the moon would experience. Next in his moon's wildlife discoveries were creatures that the article suspects would be classified as monsters on Earth. These were small, goat-sized species that were the color of, quote, bluish lead. Males had single horns and beards, and female had neither horns nor beards, but did have longer tails than the males did. They frolicked around like antelopes, and they were very social creatures, and their antics, according to this report, were quite delightful. Yeah, it goes on at length about how they were jumping around and playing with each other and how all of the astronomers observing this just were charmed to pieces. They were charmed (laughs) by the delightful monsters. By the delightful goat unicorn creatures that were blue. Uh, There were also water birds espied through this telescope, including pelicans and cranes being the most common. Uh, These birds were discovered along a branching river, and the astronomers watched this river for some time, hoping to get their eyes on what they suspected might be lunar fish. But they were not rewarded. Uh, But they did deduce that the fish must have been there because the birds were seen dunking their heads in the water, seemingly as a a food-gathering activity. At this point in the observations, the lunar atmosphere, not Earth's atmosphere, became too cloudy for them to be able to see any further, And so the observers decided to take a break. They were also pretty tired by that point. So that ended the second installment of the New York Suns series with kind of a cliffhanger. Yeah, at this point, they've introduced crazy animal species that have been seen on the moon. Uh, But there is so much more to come. So on Thursday, August 27th of 1835, the third installment of the Moon Discovery series was published. The cloudy conditions that had halted their viewings for a couple of nights cleared up on January 13th. And at that point, both the moon's atmosphere and the Earth's were clear. Quote, one of pearly purity and loveliness. And as the position of the moon relative to the telescope's location was getting ready to shift, Dr. Grant wrote that Dr. Herschel wanted to focus the entirety of the evening on January 13th to just a few specific spots before that shift happened. Uh, There is, uh, at this point in the narrative, additional topographical descriptions of the moon's landscape. And these go on and on for quite 
some length uh, to detail. There are mountains. There are uh, mountains made of crystal. There are active and inactive volcanoes. There are incredibly fertile areas. At one point, uh, this third installment describes it as, quote, fertile to excess uh, in one passage. So it goes on a lot about the landscape. Additional animals were identified as being different from the ones that had been sighted on earlier viewings, including larger versions of those bison creatures, as well as numerous flocks of red and white birds. Herschel and his team, uh, according to this article, classified 38 different species of lunar forest trees that night, and twice that number of plants in the relatively small area where they were concentrating their observations. They also uh, cataloged nine mammal species and five oviparous species. The mammals included beasts that looked like little reindeer, as well as elk and moose and horned bears, and one that looked like a biped beaver, although apparently the moon beavers had no tails. So the moon beaver gets talked about a lot. It was very exciting. And it also, again, being biped, uh, carried its young cradled in its arms the same way that a human would as it was tootling around on its hind legs. And these lunar beavers also constructed huts rather than dams, so they're a little more archaeological or um, architecturally advanced. And this construction was described as, quote, better and higher than those of many tribes of human savages, and from the appearance of smoke in nearly all of them, there is no doubt of its being acquainted with the use of fire. So if if you do have the opportunity, which I encourage you to take, to listen to the Memory Palace episode about this, one of my favorite parts is about these beavers. <laughs> uh, when you're reading the articles, the, the beaver part is just hilarious to me. Yes. Because there's such excitement over these biped beavers that know how to use fire. So south of where these beaver-type animals were seen was a dense forest where the only animal seen was this large stork-like bird. Not far from the thickly wooded area was the largest lake that was visible, which was estimated to be 198 by 266 miles, or 319 by 428 kilometers. The lake reportedly contained volcanic islands. And uh, before we talk about a little bit of amazing flora seen on some of these islands in this lake, do you want to have a word from a sponsor? Sure. Back to these amazing volcanic islands discovered on the moon. One of the really fabulous and exciting discoveries there was that there were moon palm trees. These were uh, visually almost identical to earth palm trees, except that they blossomed with bright red flowers and they did not appear to bear fruits like date or coconuts. However, in terms of fruit-bearing trees, there was a melon tree. And there were herds of miniature zebras and birds that the team thought were pheasants. The shores of this massive body of water were also filled with shellfish. Uh, and as this third entry in the series winds down, there is an attempt to describe the crystalline vista that's surrounding these waters. Although the curvature of the moon and the Earth's rotation uh, allows for no visibility that, that they can identify the end of this particular segment of landscape. So you may be thinking that the wonders described up until this point were really pretty amazing. But 
The fourth installment that was printed in the New York Sun is even more incredible. This one appeared on Friday, August 28, 1835, and a lot of people regard it as the most sensational of the six parts of this serial. So, again, it starts uh, as previous entries with a lengthy description of the latest landscape that they're observing, uh, which featured bright red perpendicular mountains and long veins of what the team concluded were virgin gold. Uh, They also describe another quadruped species, and these ones were uh, observed to be white, sheep-like beasts, but with long necks. And the body is described almost deer-like in shape, but with longer front legs. So as I was trying to visualize this, I was like, it's a sheep-deer-giraffe? But then another group of animals is described that apparently looked exactly like sheep. Exactly like sheep. No no visible variation at all. Uh, and they were so obviously sheep, according to Dr. Grant's account, that it made all of the astronomers laugh. And then Dr. Grant's account drops the real bomb. A wholly new creature appeared in the telescope's view. And several groups of winged creatures descended from a cliff face to land on an open plain. Sir John Herschel is quoted in the article as saying, quote, Now, gentlemen, my theories against your proofs which you have often found a pretty even bet, we have here something worth looking at. I was confident that if we ever found beings in human shape, it would be in this longitude, and that they would be provided by their creator with some extraordinary powers of locomotion. First exchange for my number D. And so when he asked for that exchange for number D, that refers to a lens that Herschel wanted to use to uh, more carefully examine the scene before him. So adjustments were quickly made to the telescope and everything was refocused. And the team then viewed three groups of these beings walking erect. And these new creatures were indeed similar to humans. After more focusing and more adjustments, these creatures were brought into clearer focus and they appeared to be about four feet or 1.2 meters tall. They had copper-colored fur all over their bodies except for on their faces, and their wings were like bat wings. Their faces were described as, quote, a slight improvement upon that of the large orangutan. It's actually spelled in this as orangutan, which delights me. Uh, (laughs) And they're described as seeming more intelligent than the earth primate, the orangutan. Yeah. Uh, These bat people also had beards and darker hair on their heads than on the rest of their bodies. Uh, One of Herschel's assistants is quoted in Grant's account as saying, quote, they would look as well on a parade ground as some of the old Cockney militia. Herschel and his team observed these beings in what appeared to be impassioned conversation, gesturing to one another just like human beings would. This species was named by Herschel as Vespertilio Homo, man-bat, and the valley where they lived was named the Ruby Coliseum. The New York Sun omitted some of the passages from the notes at the behest of Dr. Grant, who apparently felt like those elements were best shared by Sir Herschel himself. The Sun indicated that the omitted material does, quote, contain facts which would be wholly incredible to readers who do not carefully examine the principles and capacity of the instrument with which these marvelous discoveries have been made. Uh, The newspaper also indicates that sort of their editorial opinion that when the entirety of this work is published by Herschel, it is going to be, quote, 
at once the most sublime in science and the most intense in general interest that ever issued from the press. And that is where we now will cliffhang you. The second episode of this two-parter is going to finish off Dr. Grant's accounts of what Herschel observed on the moon, and then we'll talk about how all of this was received by the public and by other newspapers, and even by Sir John Herschel himself. Yeah, so there's plenty more, uh, although we've given you probably the the juiciest of the actual uh, fauna discoveries. Thank you so much for joining us for this Saturday Classic. Since this is out of the archive, if you heard an email address or a Facebook URL or something similar during the course of the show, that may be obsolete now. So here is our current contact information. We are at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com, and then we're at Missed in History all over social media. That is our name on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Pinterest, and Instagram. Thanks again for listening. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 